light went on. Um, so yeah, I'm v- very grateful to be with you this morning. As Jason mentioned, I was in Haiti um, a few weeks ago with Jim, and we had a great time together. I, I love Jim, as I'm sure you do, and I'm thankful to God for him. Paul says to Timothy to keep a close watch on your life and on your teaching. And I feel like Jim does both of those things um, with a, a great degree of diligence, um, serving you as pastor. And uh, so I'm, I'm thankful to God for him, as I know you are, and uh, grateful to, to be together with you this morning. Um, I, th- I think, if I understand things correctly, you've just gotten back into the book of Genesis. Um, so uh, with an Old Testament professor on the front row, I didn't want to touch it. And um, so I hope you'll forgive me for jumping out of Genesis. And we'll be in Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 1 this morning. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, these words of Jesus, dear to us. Um, they all come from the Lord, and so we're, we're thankful for that, and yet grateful to be able to have these words um, from our Savior for us. You know, we've all become um, experts at marketing ourselves. There's this increasing obsession um, that we have over others' perception of us, especially with uh, an age of social media, but that's not really a unique dynamic to the age of social media. You know, the the internet and photo filtering apps may make it easier for us to uh, control uh, the perception that others have of us online. Um, but that is by no means new. You know, there is this increasing obsession, but it's also um, just as, as old as humanity. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And that obsession with image, uh, personal brand control, is, is something that um, Jesus actually talks about here in uh, Matthew. And I, I want to remind you of this morning. Samuel Johnson, uh, the British essayist, said people more often need reminding than they need to be instructed. Uh, And C.S. Lewis actually followed up on that comment saying, the real job of every moral teacher is to keep on bringing us back time after time to the old simple truths which we are all so eager not to see. That's what I want to do this morning, just simply remind you of one of those old, simple principles um, that is core to Christianity. So I just finished reading through uh, the Gospel of Matthew over the past 30 days, just one chapter a day, and wanted to remind you of something that Jesus emphasizes really throughout the Gospel that Matthew uh, would have picked up from Jesus in his teaching and passed along here in this Gospel. Uh, You may remember Matthew was one of the 12 disciples Uh, He had been a selfish tax collector until one day Jesus passes by his tax collecting booth and says, follow me. And Matthew uh, leaves behind his former life and follows Jesus. Whenever someone follows Jesus, their life is radically transformed from what it once was. and, And that happened for Matthew. And so then Matthew followed Jesus for several years, listening to everything he said and seeing everything he did. And because of that, Matthew becomes one of the most qualified people to write a record of the the life and works of Jesus, which he has done in this gospel one of the four Gospels. And one of the things that's unique about Matthew's Gospel is that he focuses on um, the long discourses of Jesus, the the teaching of Christ. Um, For instance, here at the beginning of this Gospel, he includes um, one of the most famous sermons ever preached, the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, And and this this sermon recorded in chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 is really um, like a a compilation, uh, a brief summary of the doctrine of Christ collected out of his various teachings and discourses. 
um, delivered to the crowd. So picture this, a cool summer afternoon, uh, an expansive grassy hillside, and this dynamic, passionate, powerful new teacher whose recent fame has drawn a huge crowd. And they're all seated there on the hillside, and this teacher who's new to the religious scene Uh, begins to teach like they've never heard before. The Gospels all tell us that the crowds were marveled, uh, amazed, uh, in awe of Jesus' teaching. And he reminds them, he, he begins here reminding them of these regulations that they had been taught to follow. Uh, Jesus keeps driving home, though, the deeper meaning of all these uh, commandments. For instance, he says, uh, you have been taught, thou shalt not murder. But then he says, the deeper meaning of that commandment, thou shalt not murder, is really that you, you shouldn't even hate your brother or despise your brother in your heart. Uh, in other words, you can be inside of man's law, no murder, and yet outside of God's law. You've not loved your brother from your heart. And, he, and here's what's shocking to the crowd as, he, as he's doing this. You have been taught, but I say to you, and he does that six times in chapter five. And what's shocking to the crowd, you know, the religious leaders, so the scribes and, and Pharisees, they're like the holiest of the holy. They're intensely religious. They're known to be radically righteous. They're, they're so good at keeping all the regulations that they're actually creating new religious regulations and binding other people to follow them. But Jesus tells the crowd, and here's what's shocking to the crowd. Jesus tells them there in chapter 5, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then after he explains uh, that greater righteousness, what does he mean by a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees? It's a righteousness that's from the heart, uh, not just keeping external commands, but loving and obeying God from the heart. That's the, the greater righteousness. He explains that in these, set, these six antitheses in chapter 5, and then he concludes uh, there in verse 48 of chapter 5, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And that sets us up then, it brings us to this warning that Jesus gives at the very beginning of chapter 6, verse 1, the verse that we'll be focusing on this morning where Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So here's the old simple principle that I want to remind you of this morning. That true righteousness is distinguished by a desire for God's approval, not man's. True righteousness is distinguished by a desire for God's approval, not man's. And, and this principle entails two cautions. The first caution based on this principle that Jesus gives here is about motive. Consider your motives. And then the second uh, caution is about outcome. Consider the consequences of your motive. So there, there are these, these two cautions. Uh, the first caution, consider your motives. Again, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. So Jesus actually says, beware of doing good works which is surprising because Jesus is kind of known for good works. He actually had that in common uh, with the scribes and and Pharisees. He had a reputation for righteousness. But here he's warning about a viral strand of righteousness, a, a corrupted or infected righteousness, which actually isn't what it appears to be. 
It's putting on a show. It's, it's masquerading. Actually, a, a looser translation of this verse puts it this way. Be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be the one who's applauding. The Greek word for to be seen by others is actually the word that we get theatrical from. It's a spectacular show. It's a performance to be seen by others. So the danger that Jesus is warning about is this. What appears to be righteousness may actually be wrong. And then Jesus gives some specific examples of good works being corrupted by this pathology. Uh, The examples are giving, praying, and fasting. So you see there in verse 2, Jesus says, Thus when you give to the needy. And then in verse 5, he says, And when you pray. And then in verse 16, he says, And when you fast. So he gives these different examples of good works, acts of righteousness or religious devotedness. And these are examples of what he means by practicing righteousness in order to be seen by others. So Jesus gives these bullet points, but we could really list out many more examples of of things that, that may be good, but might be corrupted. And notice Jesus doesn't call for reduced obedience. He says, when you give to the needy, when you pray, when you fast. Jesus is assuming we ought to be doing these things. He expects this kind of righteousness, living a well-ordered life. We could add many more things to this. Being a, a, a hard worker, being financially prudent, being generous to community causes, Uh, helping the disadvantaged in the community like refugees, um, serving in the church community and really any kind of Christian ministry. You know, all of these things are good works that are attended by this danger of corrupt motive. And it's the motive that Jesus tells us to beware of. Dorothy Day was a a Catholic. She was a social activist in the early 1900s. In fact, during the the Great Depression, the early 30s, she um, started uh, a kind of communal living quarters in um, Lower East Manhattan in New York City where the poor could come and uh, find a warm place to sleep and and food to eat. She devoted her life uh, to good works. Uh, but Dorothy Day was always on, on guard against um, these, these motives of spiritual pride, the self-righteousness of doing good. So she says at one point, I have to stop myself sometimes. I have found myself rushing from one person to another, soup bowl and more soup bowls, plates of bread and more plates of bread, with the gratitude of the hungry becoming a loud din in my ears. The hunger of my ears can be as severe as someone else's stomach hunger. The joy of hearing those expressions of gratitude. The hunger of the ears, the desire for the compliments, the approval of others. She she believed that the sin of self-righteous pride was around every corner. And to to, to serve others, to live a life of serving others, is to, to live under this great temptation. This can happen in the world of corporate philanthropy as well. When a company contributes to social causes, we often, um, as consumers, wonder what the real motive was. Harvard Business Review reports that the tobacco giant Philip Morris, the ones who make Marlboro cigarettes, uh, in one year they reported $75 million in charitable contributions. And then they launched a $100 million campaign uh, to publicize their charity. 
So we're, we're right to wonder about corporate philanthropy and the motives that actually drive it. And when you pause to reflect on your own good works, don't you sometimes run a publicity campaign of your own? You're interested not simply in doing good, but in being known, appreciated, or applauded for doing good. But it's really just good theater, a performance. Of course, the reality is there for all of us that our motives are usually mixed. It's rarely purely good or pure evil. You, you may truly want to help, uh, but then you crave the applause that comes when you do. So it's, it's hard to know sometimes what the, what the motivation ratio is. You know, is it 60-40, 70-30? What's, what's driving me in this? Evaluating motives it can feel like a, a slippery thing to do. It's often difficult to discern. And um, so there's this, this need, this, this warning um, that Jesus gives us to evaluate, and yet there's also a need not to descend into uh, this downward spiral of introspection because Jesus isn't condemning good works. He's not calling us to, to not fulfill good works. He's, he's simply warning about that danger. So go ahead with your good works. Jesus expects these external acts of righteousness, but there is wisdom in self-suspicion. You know, be aware of your own heart. In fact, Jesus gives a, a prescription for this danger. If you know your heart is overtaken by uh, craving for spectators, Jesus gives a prescription uh, for that problem. He says, practice secrecy. So you see there in verse two, he says, when you give to the needy, uh, don't sound a trumpet, don't do it on the street corners to be praised by others, but rather don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then in verse five, and when you pray, uh, again, don't do it to be seen by others. Don't do it in the street corners, but rather go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And then verse 16, uh, and when you fast, don't look gloomy so others know that you're fasting. Uh, instead, you know, take a shower, wash your face, do all the normal things so that no one knows you're fasting, so that it may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. Dallas Willard calls it the discipline of secrecy. He says it's when we abstain from causing our good deeds and qualities to be known. We may even take steps to prevent them from being known if it doesn't involve deceit. To help us lose or uh, tame the hunger for fame, justification, or just the mere attention of others, we will often need the help of grace. But as we practice this discipline, we learn to love to be unknown. Uh, Secrecy helps us break free from the grip of human opinion. So we, we can fire our public relations department. We can learn to love to be unknown, as Dallas Willard says. And and then um, what, what is done in secret becomes the, the test case for us of who we truly are. And not that we should always presume that good works that are done publicly or seen by others are wrongly motivated, whether they're our own works or that of others. Uh, but it does mean that, that it's what we do in private, in secret, uh, that is a better diagnostic for the true condition of our heart. It helps us, uh, evaluating what's done in secret helps us to uh, uncover what's genuine and discern what's genuine from what's masquerading. 
we're trying to keep our hearts from deceiving us because when, when you start pulling the wool over other people's eyes consistently, we find that eventually we're deceiving ourselves as well. And this dynamic is really demonic, by which I mean it's, it's like the devil. The Apostle Paul says that um, these swindlers, in, in his letter to the uh, Corinthians, he says that these swindlers who had infiltrated the church were deceitful, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an agent of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, and pretending to be servants of righteousness while promoting their own uh, ego and fame. This is being like Satan. Um, this happened a few, few months ago for me. I can't remember ex- exactly when. I, I was driving home from worship, uh, gathered worship like this one Sunday afternoon. And uh, in my short drive home, I live about three minutes from Christ's covenant, uh, but that's all it took. In my short drive home, I began thinking about uh, a compliment that someone had spoken to me that morning. And uh, as I began to think about that compliment, it grew larger and larger in my mind, way beyond what they had said. They may have been flattering for all I know, and yet I convinced myself that they must think about that regularly. Um, And that if they think that, well, then they must think this as well, and I'm, I'm sure they've talked with other people about that, and probably a lot of people. You see, you've probably had that kind of thing going on in your mind as well, and what happened was that I was leaving worship and the, the Holy Spirit convicted me, you've left worship and now you're worshiping yourself and basking in your own glory. But that's the kind of thing we do so that even good works done rightly motivated may after the fact become distorted, twisted, and turn into self-glorying rather than worship of God. The devil will take every opportunity to lure our hearts into sin as we serve God. So here's the challenge Jesus then poses. Don't worry about your public acts. What is your secret life like? You know, secretly, without anyone knowing, what is your giving? Uh, Secretly, where no one else knows, are you praying regularly? Uh, Do you find that you pray long and eloquently when you're with others, and yet short and sporadically or not at all when you're alone? And secretly, when you're alone, do you, do you fast and depend on God? Who you are with God when no one else is watching uh, is who you truly are before God. So true righteousness, true righteousness is marked by a desire for God's approval, not man's. And the first caution that Jesus gives then here is to consider your motives Consider your motives. And the second caution then is to consider the consequences, the the outcome of your motives. So look especially at the second half of what Jesus says in verse one. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. In other words, when you do good works for an audience, you know, as soon as there's an applause, as soon as a compliment is given, then it's done. You've had your reward. Jesus says in all three examples here that those who do their works to be seen by others, in verse uh, 2 and then 5 and then 16, he says three times, they have received their reward. That's it. It's done. It's exhausted. Once you've gotten the applause, uh, the compliment, it's done. You've received your reward, but... 
there will be no reward from the Father in heaven. Again, it might be good theater, but the God who made you won't be the one who's applauding. On the other hand, Jesus says that if you give secretly, uh, this is there at the end of verse four, if you give secretly, then your father who sees in secret will reward you. And if you pray in secret, there again at the end of verse six, Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. And if you fast, not to be seen by others, but you do it secretly, then again at the end of verse 18, Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. So repeatedly, Jesus draws their attention to the consequence of their motivation. What are you wanting? Do you want the, uh, the applause of the crowd? Or do you want reward from the Father? You know, we, we tend to think about the outcome of actions, but here Jesus draws their attention to the consequence of motivation. Lots of people think that if you do a lot of religious activities, that over time it changes your identity. But activity never changes identity. That's the opposite of the gospel. You can't achieve righteousness by gathering up all your religious activities, your good works. That is the opposite of the Christian gospel. Uh, That's what the hypocrites, the religious leaders here, are, are doing in particular. They're accumulating their good works, pretending as if God can be deceived into thinking that they're really good on the outside uh, because of uh, all their religious activities. Uh, But God uh, is not deceived. What, what they were pursuing is externalism, thinking that God would consider them right on the inside because of their deeds on the outside. But external manifestations of Christianity are never the focus of Jesus' concern because Jesus sees through the sham. That's why he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may do good works and, and trick other people into thinking that you're, uh, that you're a good person because of your good works, but God is never deceived by what is visible. God sees the heart. Your father sees in secret. And there's one thing that's pleasing to God. There's one thing that God wants, and that is a heart that loves him. A heart that wants to please him. A heart that wants the father's approval, the reward of the father, uh, and and nothing more. That's what pleases God. And so uh, Jesus, as I've said, isn't really calling for a reduced obedience. He's calling for a renovation of the heart. He's calling for transformation from the inside. So the primary thing that's needed is not um, learning how to Act, uh, but, but, but rather a transformation of our thoughts, our feelings, our inner disposition. That's what's needed. We need inward righteousness. Righteousness is a lofty sounding word, isn't it? A word that as soon as it's spoken feels immediately beyond us. And it is beyond us. Because it's not actions that we can get to by working hard. Righteousness is this new inner disposition that's not addicted to the approval of others, but rather a heart that loves to please God, that loves the Father, our Father and our Maker, and wants to please Him. 
Well, where do we get that? You know, where do we get this new heart f- f- uh, full of pure motivation? How do we learn to hear God's voice above all the others and to want his approval regardless of the crowds? Where does that kind of true righteousness come from? Righteousness like this only comes from one place. It's a gift from God. It was probably a couple months before Jesus preached um, the Sermon on the Mount that he was baptized by John in uh, the Jordan River. And as John was about to baptize him, Jesus says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. There's a lot we could say about that comment, but when Jesus refers to fulfilling all righteousness, he's basically referring to the whole work of his life, that he fulfilled all righteousness. His motives were always perfect, and his heart was always attuned to the Father's voice. And in fact, it was that voice, the Father's voice, immediately after the baptism that booms from heaven, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So the righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, the righteousness that God demands, the perfection that we must have in order to see the Father, is actually not something that we attain, but it's something that God gives. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. The Father was pleased with him, and then God gives that righteousness to us. Paul says in his letter to the Romans in chapter 5 that God's grace, his kindness to us, abounds with this free gift that comes through that one man, Jesus Christ. And what is that free gift? Well, Paul says a few verses later that the free gift is righteousness. For as by one man's disobedience, referring to the sin of Adam in the garden, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience referring to the life of Jesus who fulfilled all righteousness, by that one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Made righteous. That is the the gift. So Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. God gives righteousness as a free gift. We are made righteous. We are considered righteous by God who gives this, this new identity to us. He is able to change who we are. Religious activities cannot change who we are, but God gives a new identity. He transforms us from the inside as a free gift to us. And then, once God begins renovating the heart like this, uh, you know, part of that on-site reconstruction project that he's doing in our hearts is that he gives us a new love, that he gives us new motivations. This is part of the work of God's Holy Spirit in our hearts. The, the fundamental change that we need is this change from craving man's approval, being people pleasers to the core, uh, to, to rather becoming, uh, seeking God's approval, being motivated by wanting the Father's reward, being a God pleaser to the core. That is a change that is the work of God's spirit once we have received this new identity from God. So if, if you see this, these really problematic, self-serving, self-inflating kind of motivations in your heart, Jesus says, beware, you will never get the reward of the Father. And the prescription that Jesus gives us right here in the text is, 
practice secrecy. But then another prescription from the Apostle Paul is seek the Spirit. The Spirit's work in your heart to, to bring about this change. So in Romans 8.13, Paul says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you are working to put to death a craving for man's approval, the, the power for that, that work is from the Spirit. He empowers us for that. And then in Galatians 5, Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love. If we, if we want love toward God and others, it's the Spirit who's going to bring that about in us. And then he goes on to say in Galatians, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, not being conceited or envying one another. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says that followers of Jesus are transformed into the likeness of Jesus from one degree to the next, and that this comes from the Spirit. So the Spirit helps us put to death sinful motivations. The Spirit brings about a new motivation in us, love toward God and others. And the Spirit is uh, the one who makes us look more like Christ from the inside out. In all of these passages, Paul is reminding us that the internal change that we need, that Jesus refers to here in Matthew 6, is the particular work of the Holy Spirit. It's something that he does in us. So the mark of the person then who has been changed by the Holy Spirit is that they love God. They, they want to please him. Jonathan Edwards said that the essence of all true religion lies in holy affections. The essence of all true religion lies in holy affections. Uh, affections being those deep desires of the heart, the motivating core of who we are that issues forth in, in good works. For that core of who we are to change, that comes from the Spirit. So Jesus says, practice the discipline of secrecy. And Paul adds to that counsel, walk by the Spirit. Depend on the Spirit to change that fundamental dynamic of what happens in our hearts and what motivates us at the core. And then when God has renewed our hearts so that we want his approval, then we will have eternal reward. That's what Jesus is setting our attention on here in this teaching. The reward of the Father the, the, the idea of reward is all over this passage. Not receiving reward on the one hand, receiving the reward of the Father on the other hand. It's what Jesus is pointing out to us, the outcome of our motivations. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He says it three times. We should want, we should be driven by, compelled by the reward of the Father. In fact, C.S. Lewis referred to heaven as a place where we're patted on the back, where we receive the approval of the Father. What do you expect from God? Do you think about what the Father thinks of you? Do you want the approval of the Father, his eternal approval of you, this reward that Jesus refers to? You know, I, I stand before you this morning talking about this Jesus who I love and this Bible that I believe, and you assume some measure of genuineness about the things that I'm saying and about my heart, my, my understanding of this passage and my, my love for Christ, but I, I won't ultimately give account to you for this. 
ultimately I will give account to the Father uh, for the motivations that are in my heart as I stand before you. And is this, is this genuineness, sincerity, or is this hypocrisy and duplicity? You know, God knows those things. And Hebrews says that we will all stand before the one to whom we must give account. And all things are naked and exposed to his eyes. What does the Father think of you? You know, more than anything else, I want his pat on the back. When I get there, I, I want his approval, like how God said of Jesus, his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I want to hear the father say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. And that desire, the desire for God's approval, is something that Jesus affirms here. And says that should be the compelling, driving motivation for us in practicing good works. So we, we each have to consider, uh, be cautious over our motives in each action asking, is, is my motive right now for the Father, for his affirmation, or is it seeking the approval of people around me? Normally we'll, we'll, we'll proceed with obedience just asking the Holy Spirit to, to put to death self-serving motives. Uh, but there are times where, where you may find after honest assessment that your motives are so predominantly concerned with the approval of others, the applause of others, that you actually forego uh, visible good deeds because it's true, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the man who is concerned most of all about his public appearance before men is never much concerned about his private attitude before God. The concern of our hearts must be about our private attitudes before God. So maybe the right question to ponder then as we conclude is what, what is the condition of your private secret communion with God? What's the condition of your private secret communion with God? Do you find a discrepancy between your public appearances and your secret communion? And then by God's grace, uh, may we repent of loving to be seen by others and grow in our desire to be approved of by the Father and seek his reward alone. So let me pray toward that end for us now. That's what we have to do is ask the Spirit uh, to change our hearts in this regard. It's a simple reminder and yet an impossible task for us to achieve on our own. Uh, So let's ask that the Father would do this for us.